The reading stand as God's word is read. The reading today is from 1 Joshua, verses 1 to 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Praise be the Lord. Um, I've used this passage to do devotionals in the last number of weeks, too. Um, so I thought, well, I should revisit the sermon that it came from. So that's what this is about. The passage that we have just read from Joshua 1 comes to us from the banks of the Jordan River in ancient Middle East, a time and culture vastly, vastly different than our own. But there's a word that occurs twice in this chapter that immediately make it meaningful for us in 21st century Calgary. It's the word success. Verse 7, that you may have good success wherever you go. Verse 8, then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. If there's one idea that drives the culture in which we live... It's probably the idea that we call success. Now, success, of course, is defined in many ways. Corporate success means advancement in your career and a salary to go with it. Political success might mean increasing your power and your influence. Personal success might mean finding serenity and contentment, self-actualization. Success in the entertainment industry means popularity. We can define success relationally, financially. But however we define success, the two common denominators seem to me our own happiness and the affirmation of others. We're successful if we were busy doing the things that we want to do 
or we're successful when other people are suitably impressed with us, how we look, how we perform, what we accomplish, etc. There is a widespread and relentless push on the part of our whole North American culture to make this kind of success the central value. We're told how to dress for success. We're given steps toward a better you. We're even being told that God's plan for our lives is to make us uh, materially prosperous. And all of this assumes, of course, that it's all about us, which it isn't. One of the best definitions of success I've ever heard is, success is to find out what God wants you to do and do it. And to that, I would add, do it effectively. Success, then, is not just doing things right, it's doing the right things and doing them right. And this has significant meaning for us, for us as a church, for me, as an individual, the right things include adding value to my wife, raising my children, preaching the word of God, living as a compelling witness for Christ, and a host of other things. For us as a church, we've come to understand that success means to be a growing community that worships Christ and proclaims the gospel where the presence of the Holy Spirit is felt and where we love God and people. And so success means to do these things well, do them effectively. Well, there's a problem, isn't there? We struggle with these things and are often frustrated because we recognize how poorly we do them. I'm not half the husband I want to be. I'm not half the preacher I want to be. I feel I'm stumbling through parenthood. My life of faith is inconsistent and faltering. And as a church, there is lots that is good. But don't we often think, shouldn't we be seeing more people come to faith? More significant life transformation. Shouldn't our life of prayer together be deeper, more vital? Shouldn't our Sunday mornings be more life-giving? And it isn't a guilt thing. It isn't a guilt thing. We're not beating ourselves up for our failures. It's a hunger thing. A God-given desire for what we know can be. We long for what we know God desires for us. And we wonder why we don't experience more of it. So the question today is, how can we experience more success in the things we know God calls us to? And that's what makes Joshua chapter 1 so important for us. There is a formula for success in this chapter. And the word formula may sound oversimplified. Maybe we prefer to say that there are important principles for us in this chapter. But it really is a formula. It's very simple, very straightforward. And we can, we can apply this formula to our own lives. We can apply it, apply it to the church. It is to say, if I apply this formula to myself, I guarantee I will be more effective as a preacher. Not a better speaker necessarily, 
but more effective preacher. I will be a better husband and a better parent, guaranteed. If we apply this formula to our church, I guarantee that we will see more people getting saved, we'll experience deeper unity, our worship will be even more authentic, transforming, guaranteed. And so God's word to Joshua is very much God's word to us today. Joshua chapter 1 sees the nation of Israel on the threshold of the promised land after 40 years in the desert. They had been an enslaved nation in Egypt. God had dramatically rescued them, led them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai when he made a covenant with them to be their God. And they made a covenant with him to be his faithful people. Then they came shortly to the promised land. A rich and fertile land which God had promised centuries before to give to Abraham's descendants, Israel. But the Israelites were afraid of the land's present inhabitants and refused to go in. Only three men, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, said, God will give us this land. Let's do it. And everyone else advocated, incredibly, a return to Egypt. They threatened to stone Joshua and Caleb. So God sent the people back to the desert for 40 years, and the whole generation died off. Now, 40 years later, the new generation of Israelites is here again, about to enter the promised land. Moses has died. And Joshua, himself now an older man, is a leader of the people. And before them, across the Jordan River, lies the land of Canaan, the land God will give to them. But it's no easier an undertaking now than it was four decades earlier. There are still fortified cities. There are still nations under kings. There are still fearsome warriors. So Israel faces the same difficulties and fears as their fathers did. And God is calling Joshua now to lead the conquest. Joshua's God-given task, his right thing, is to take a million-plus people with a history of rebellion against God and his chosen leaders, a ragtag bunch who have been born and raised either in slavery or in the desert, and lead them all in an organized conquest and settlement of a new land. Sound impossible? Impossible? Does anything in your life sound impossible? Raising kids in a godless and sick culture? Living life as a single in, in, in an environment of marriage? Living as an obvious Christian in a school setting? Being sexually pure not only in deed but in thought? being a transforming presence in a community that we barely know, facing this or that crisis, restoring your marriage, knowing God. Because life is hard, isn't it? The odds of success are almost nil for Joshua. The Israelites are spectacularly petty and childish, 
stubbornly resistant to God, the enemies they face are strong, well-defended, experienced in war. But then God comes to Joshua and gives him the formula that will ensure his success. The petty Israelites, don't worry about them. The strong enemies, not a factor. Apply the formula, Joshua, and be successful. And the same formula works 3,400 years later when we give ourselves to the thing that God calls us to. What is the formula for success? Let's frame it in its most basic form along the lines of A plus B equals C. So our formula will look like this. There are two elements to this formula, and they have to do with God. Next slide. And with us. God brings something to the formula, and we bring something to the formula. Okay? In Joshua 1, God promises Joshua something, but he also calls Joshua to do something. And Joshua's success is contingent on both of these things being in play. So, God's part we represent with the letter P, and our part with the letters SOS. So our formula for success looks like this. Now that is thoroughly confusing. Let's figure out what all this means. We start with God's part. In Joshua 1, God comes to Joshua and lays out the assignment. Moses is dead, Joshua, and you are the leader now. So lead the people across the river into the land I'm going to give you. That's the mission. That's the task. The occupation and settlement of the land. It will become Israel's land, and Joshua is to lead the way. And then God says in verse 5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. It's the promise of God's presence. God never calls anyone to anything except that he also guarantees his presence as we do. I will be with you. God's presence invite, implies his strength and his power, his help. God does not send us out on our own. He promises his constant presence. And what effect does that have on us? It gives us courage. We do not fear. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Verse 7, be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Some of you are faced with things and wonder, how can I do this successfully? You're facing suffering, facing even death. And you know that even in this, God calls you to have hope, to hold on to faith, even to choose joy. How can you possibly succeed in doing this? Part of the formula is God's presence. 
Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear courage in the face of, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Some of you are facing a situation when, where it seems people are against you. Maybe they're gossiping. Maybe people are undermining you at work. You're a victim of office politics. And God calls you to maintain a gracious spirit and a posture of love and humility. How can you succeed in this? Part of the formula is God's presence. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Some of you are afraid for your future security and are driven by a need to establish yourself financially. God asks you, calls you not to worry, not to chase after money, not to put your trust in it. And in our cultures, that's very hard. How can we be counterculture? Cultural. How can we have success in what God has called us to do? Part of the formula is God's presence. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Some of you want to speak the name of Jesus to people you care about, but you're afraid. Afraid of rejection. Afraid of offense. Afraid you'll do it wrong. Afraid you won't have all the answers. How can you succeed in speaking Christ to people? Part of the formula is God's presence. Jesus said to the Apostle Paul, when he faced opposition in the city of Corinth, he said, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. The great task of the church, of all Christians, is to make disciples of Jesus, to introduce people to the reality of Jesus, to invite them to surrender to his lordship. And we are called to this on a global scale. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Sound daunting? Sound like too big a job for us? Notice what Jesus says next. And surely I am with you, always, even to the end of the age. In all the right things that God calls us to, for me to preach, to be a husband and dad, for us to worship and witness and love, the starting place is the presence of God. The reality that God is with it. I will be with you, he said to Joshua. I'm with you always, he says to us. And isn't it the great danger for us that we forget? And feel we have to pull it off on our own strength. That God is watching us from the sidelines to see how we do. But God is in the game. He's got our back. He's in the trenches with us. God never calls us to anything 
and expects us to take off on our own. Even when he laid the hard road before it, he says this, I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. So the first half of our formula for success is God's presence. True success in the things that matter, the things that God calls us to, is contingent on God's presence. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do only a few things. You, can do, you can't do some of the most important things. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's true. But God did not merely guarantee his presence with Joshua. He also called Joshua to do something and said that Joshua's success was contingent on it. Verses 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. You may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Now, please understand that this verse cannot be lifted out of this chapter and applied as a blanket principle to our lives. God is not promising us that our businesses will flourish, that we rich. God has given to Joshua a very specific mission and said, you'll succeed in this task to the extent that you know and obey my word. And it was only as Joshua submitted himself to the word of the Lord that he would have success. Notice the sequence in verse 8. Meditate on it so that you will be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Meditate so you can obey. Then prosper and succeed. Study, obey, and succeed. So here's the other half of the formula. That's our part. Study and obey the scriptures. The idea that success comes to those who do this is echoed in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He is like a, tr uh, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Of course, all that he does will be driven by his delighting in the law of the Lord. He seeks first God's kingdom, not his own personal prosperity. And the notion that success in our God-given mandate is contingent on our obedience to the scripture is not purely an Old Testament idea. Look at 2 Timothy 3, the clearest New Testament statement of the divine, divine authority of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. 
Without the scripture, we're not equipped. We can't do the right things. We can't do what God has called us to. So do I set aside the scripture and then wonder why I parent poorly? Do I read my Bible but made no e- make no effort to conform my life to it? And wondering why my preaching sometimes falls flat? Do we sometimes consider the Bible a spiritual vitamin, but not allow it the authority to shape us and then wonder why we seem to lack God's blessing? Or have we noticed that to the extent that we know and seek to order our lives under the scripture, we see God moved. We experience his help, his blessing. We must beware of thinking that obedience is a duty that God rewards by success, as is some exchange we're going on, that God withholds success until we prove sufficiently obedient, until we've performed satisfactorily. Think of it this way. For my car to get from point A to point B, two things are needed, a driver and gas in the tank. That's my car's formula for success. And the driver does not say, I refuse to move this car until someone put gas in the tank. The car, of course, can't go anywhere unless there is gas in the tank. When we are obedient, when we order our lives under the word of God, we are putting gas in our tank. We're rendering ourselves ready for service. So success is not a reward for obedience. Success is a fruit of obedience. That's an essential distinction. Success is not a reward for obedience. It's a fruit of obedience. Let's see if we can't make it concrete. I'll use the examples I've uh, referred to a few times already, that my own parenting. This is something that God calls me to, for which I feel woefully inadequate. So what is my formula for success as a parent? Not, Not what will guarantee my kids will turn out right. They have wills and freedoms, so I can't guarantee that. The question is, what will guarantee that I am the dad that I need to be? The dad that I am called to be? Well, first of all, God is with me. He doesn't toss me into the deep end of parenting and say, swim. He is with me. I don't do it alone. And in fact, God is even more committed to my kids than I am. So that gives me great hope and comfort. But then also, as I study and obey the scripture, God does not say, if you're obedient, I'll wave my wand and turn you into a good parent. No, it's the scripture itself and my obedience to it that forms me as a parent. For example, I read read James 1 verse 19, which says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Well, I want a life of righteousness. I want to bring it about in my children and Apparently, for me to become quickly angry does not do that. 
So I will let the authoritative word of God shape me and will try not to react in anger, to be less grumpy. I'll listen more to my kids. And guess what? I find I'm doing a better job as a dad. Or when I read Philippians 2, which says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's what happens to my relationship with my wife as I seek to live that out. Am I a better husband? Do we as a church desire success in the right things? Do we want people's lives to be transformed by God's grace in Christ? Do we want to be an outstanding witness to our children? Do we desire deeper love in this congregation and deeper love for the community? Well, what is the impact on a church when it corporately commits itself to knowing and living the Bible? Values of forgiveness, care for the poor, holiness, grace, generosity, loving accountability. Do you think that such a church becomes more, quote, successful? And remember, we're not defining success in terms of size. A successful church is one that sees people coming to faith, coming to faith, that loves people practically and helpfully, that worships authentically, authentically, and so on. But I do think God will send more people to this kind of church, not as a reward, but because he trusts them. Do you think that a church that is immersed in God's word and is committed to walking it out becomes that kind of church? So are you conforming your life under the authority of scripture? Are you submitting yourself to it? Does it have anything to say about how you speak? About how you listen? About how you spend your money? About how you work? About how you relate to your neighbors? About how you celebrate Christmas? About how you love the church and serve within her? Are you even reading it regularly? We are invited to, encouraged to delight in the study and obedience of the scripture. It's not just a book. It's living and active. It's life transforming. We have God's presence. And we are called to order our life under his words. So the formula for success is... This, God's presence, and for us to study and obey the scriptures. About 14 centuries after Joshua's time, a baby was born in a little town not far, not far from the Jordan, where Joshua first led the Israelites across. This baby's name was also Joshua in Hebrew, but we're more acquainted with the Greek form of his name, Jesus. Jesus was the eternal and divine Son of God who came from heaven to earth also to lead God's people out of the wilderness and into a promised land. Out of the wilderness of sin, emptiness, rebelling against God, and into the promised land of forgiveness, 
reconciliation to God, fullness of life. That's what God called him to do. And he accomplished his mission by means of his substitutionary death on the cross for us, by which the punishment for our sin was placed on him. And he established a new reality in Jesus. God's good kingdom was breaking into the world, ruled by brokenness and sin. He advanced God's kingdom and pushed back the kingdom of darkness. Every time he healed somebody, every time he taught and moved people from religion to God, every time he cared for people. So his mission from God was to save people from sin. It's power, it's penalty. How could, he uh, how could he succeed in what God called him to do? At the beginning of his public ministry, when he was baptized, the Spirit of God came upon him. And the voice of God from heaven publicly affirmed God's pleasure in him. And Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. God's presence. But Jesus' life was also marked by an unwavering obedience to God. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before his execution, he said to his father, not my will, but your will. It was the reality of God in Jesus that gave him success in what God called him to do. It was his obedience that gave him success in what God called him to do. He was the perfect, the complete Savior. Because where God's own presence is coupled with the obedience of his people, it results in success in the thing that God calls his people to. What has God called you to? What has God called us to? Say yes to the scripture. Let the scripture inform you on this day. Order your life under it. Little things like love and integrity and holiness and service. And you will find that at the end of your life, the big picture things have fallen into place. Find out what God wants you to do today and do it. Because God is with you. Do the same tomorrow. Day by day, step by step. Apply the formula and be successful. Amen. Let's